it's coming particularly useful, this fluid approach to life in pandemic times. If you think about it, reality is, um, we can't control it, and we create this illusion trying to control it. Welcome to episode two of Not Your Narrative. I'm Liv Phoenix. Before this episode, I'd been thinking a lot about fluidity. As a process, a drive, a mode of experience, and all of these combined. So I reached out to Maria Pia, someone I shared an immediate understanding with. The first time we met, we spent the evening gazing at each other, taking turns. Our bodies, inhabiting space, doing things in space. We occupied the same corner of that space for most of the evening. Flowing toward each other, but never actually touching, never speaking. On our second meeting, she approached. I'll never forget that approach. We connected physically, made signs, left marks. Only months later did we discover each other through words, where we found magnificent parallel. So today I'm speaking to Maria about using the body, through conscious sexuality, as a means of changing herself. As a way of breaking out of rigid categorizations, structures that limit things. She elaborates on how a fluid approach has changed all of her relationships, with family, co-workers. Still, it's not all social. Her long-entrenched political activism has shifted. Recently, she's been busy with programming for the London Uncensored Film Festival, for lovers of pornography and art. And especially those who reject the distinction between the two. So without further ado, here's Maria. Hello, gorgeous. Hello. <laughs> hi, hi. Let's get started. Yeah, right into it. So I am curious what changed your relationship to work and to sensuality and to partnerships. Was there something in particular? Or rather, what sort of realizations were you having as things started to shift? Well, I guess it's... Uh not a, a single event for me. What happened was that I had very polarized experiences and coming to this fluidity was a way to find a balance between those uh, two extremes. I moved to London when I was 17. When I arrived, I had very much a radical lifestyle. I was involved with the squatting communities, very political, <laughs> anarchist. So it was more sort of the underground scene. But I guess it became almost too radical at some point. And then because of a series of events, I ended up having a spelling corporate. So there were like two worlds which were very much in contrast. And neither of those two worlds uh, suited me in terms of finding a balance and finding myself. That's more from like how I handle the day-to-day -day life and work. And when it comes to my sexuality, my first uh, romantic uh, involvement was with a woman. But I come from southern Italy and... Uh, I sort, I think, of internalized that as it was a phase and I never spent time to really uh, try to um, explore 
and understand my sexuality. I had this experience and then I got into a long-term relationship with a man for many years, for about 11 years. And then when I got to about to approach 30, I was about 29 heading to 30, there was this moment where I felt like, okay, I experienced that way of living life. I've experienced this other way of living life in terms of uh, work or even like the day-to-day life, you know, having uh, a very regular life and neither of that was working for me. And I also felt this urge to to understand really who I was and what I liked in terms of my sexuality. Initially, I got involved with the sex-positive communities in the UK. It was an interesting introduction. It allowed me to understand that my uh, liking and love for women wasn't a, a phase as I sort of internalized it. But I also felt that there was something missing in the way sex positivity was approached in the community I was navigating in the UK. It was too structured. It was somehow too British. You see, like consent, for example, is very much based around verbal consent. And it felt very much like, I don't know, group sex and stuff like that, uh, more than uh, a deeper exploration. So. I think around about the time when I met you, I had just started getting involved more into conscious sexuality and conscious skin community. And for me, that was really a place where I could express myself and really understand myself because I, I could look at sexuality as a tool for personal development, use it as a tool for personal development. And I could also experience my personal process and sexuality in a more holistic way. So using tools which are traditionally associated more to creative stuff from uh, movement and dance and other types of stuff that is used in theater. There's a lot I want to get into in there. Hope that we can get into in there in this conversation. Later, we'll get into your way of doing activism now. But I'd like to start with your personal journey. The things that brought you to fluidity. As we started, you were speaking about your previous relationship, in that you had been together for a long time, and you'd come to a decision to open things up. Mm-mm-mm. Could you talk a little bit about that process? Okay, so that was that happened with the relationship after the very long-term one I was mentioning earlier of 11 years. I had a relationship then after with another man, which has been more of a push and pull type of dynamics, very rocky relationship. So we got together and we had a spell doing the monogamous sort of couple dynamics. And we realized that that wasn't working. We we decided to take a break. And in that process is when I discovered open relating and the sex positive communities. So when we got back together, we tried to integrate that in the relationship, in this new way of relating and was full of hiccups, of course, because uh, I was very inexperienced navigating these dynamics. He was very inexperienced as well. He never tried that before. Uh, And also I was bringing this into the game. So there was sort of an expectation that I would almost like hold space for both of us or almost being the guide or the one who was more knowledgeable. And we also did a mistake, which was going from a monogamous relationship to try the open relationship thing without really sitting down and (laughs) figuring out and naming what were those things that 
didn't allow the relationship to work in the first place. So what I found out was that actually we were bringing over the same dynamics of the previous relationship into um, this new way of relating. And on top of that, I found it extremely uh, limiting to use the model of open relationship. To me, that still felt extremely narrow in the sense that, you see, with open relating, there is still very much these... uh, labeling there is your primary partner and there is your secondary partner and there are certain do's and certain don'ts and I realized that for me it felt that we were replacing a set of rules with a different set of rules and in that process I came across what is the concept of relationship anarchy I just felt very much that each relationship is unique and that each relationship the people involved in the relationship should be negotiating their own sort of agreement which are not even statics is almost deciding okay we are relating and we want to be friends and have a romantic relationship for example or some sort of sexual interaction and that's consensually agreed and it's open to revision so you see like we decide to do that but maybe six months down the line we realize that yes we are friends and we still maybe want to have sex but actually the romantic thing is not working and i was reflecting on how can i find something which is less constraining less limiting and then i came across this notion of relationship anarchy which i think lots of people misunderstand at times and think you know it's it's just chaos it's just like you don't have any responsibility towards the other person you don't have mutual agreements but actually it's quite different it's just having you know what what is that fluidity that you were uh, alluring to before i really feel that adopting this type of relationships as This model of relationship in my life has really enriched my life and um, improved the the quality of the relationships that now I have in my life. I find it extremely enriching, fully nourished by all the relationships because they're so diverse and each of them contribute to my journey in one way. And I think I contribute to their journey in their way. And, And I think... At least for me, I'm not saying it works for everybody, but for me, it's definitely a model of relating that works much better. So you've shifted from open relating to relational anarchy, how that's enriched so many of your relationships. Could you speak a bit more on what relational anarchy is? Relationship anarchy, at least my understanding of it, because you see, sometimes sometimes everybody like takes a theory and then applies um, to themselves in the way that works for them. Uh, For me, relationship anarchy, my understanding is exactly what I was actually seeking in relationship. It's the fact that there are two people or more than two people involved in a relationship. And those people consensually have an agreement of deciding what are the elements that form the relationship. From the way you see it, wherein lies the problem with conventional relationships? sometimes in a conventional way of approaching relationships if there is one element of the relationship that doesn't work that seems to be staining and affecting in a negative way also other elements of the relationship and I really think that this is not necessary that we are capable of creating compartments for each element of the relationship and if you have good communication you can just revise where you're at uh, in relationship to another human being and whether you still want to engage in that way or you want to find a new way to engage which comprises different elements. 
a lot of elements in there. Mm, mm, mm. You were speaking a bit with your attraction to women before. Now it seems like you found a mode where you can live the fluidity of your sexual attraction, honestly. But still with that, people are also different. And what they think of as honest communication is also so different. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I'm curious how the communication goes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Have you found you're able to engage with women in a different way than you were before? And if so, how is that? So, okay, just to go back to the point, I only started exploring um, my relationship with women again when I got, thanks to getting into the sex positive scenes. But at the time, I wasn't applying the notion of relationship anarchy as such. I want to sort of emphasize that it does not only apply in a context of a romantic or a sexual type of relationship. And it has deeply changed my relationship, not only with women, but with with human beings, essentially. In terms of your question around communication, I don't think that there is a single model of communication necessarily, because as you were saying before, you know, each of us is different and each relationship we create with someone is unique. And so the exciting thing and also the sort of difficult thing, the thing that is a bit of a challenge with the relationship is that for each relationship, then you also have to somehow work out how you communicate with them. So maybe sometimes you realize that you need to take a bit of distance to understand what's going on. Maybe in that moment in time, you don't really understand what's happening. You feel something is a little bit off, but you still cannot name it. So you maybe talk to the other person and you say, maybe let's take some time. And then when you have it clear, you can communicate it to the other person. It depends really on the style of communication, on the type of elements which are navigating with the relationship of a certain human being, whether it's a distance relationship in that moment in time and you need to, um, to negotiate something with them. So I think, you know, it's constant learning by doing and uh, renegotiating. And, but the important thing for me is to emphasize that relationship anarchy is something that I am applying to every relationship. It came initially through romantic and mostly um, sexual relationship, which tend to be also the most complex one to navigate simply because of our conditioning and all that, you know, romance and sex tend to bring in terms of attachment and fear of abandonment and uh, need of approval and all these type of things. But um, it's very enriching to apply it to, to different types of relationships. Lately, I've been developing a much more interesting relationship with my sister, for example. And it's mostly a visual relationship because I haven't seen her in ages. But I noticed that with that relationship, I was still looking at it with the how you are supposed to relate to your sister, given that you're an older sister, given your upbringing in Southern Italy and all of that. And then applying this approach to relating, it's inspired to what is relationship anarchy, which is the closest in terms of concept that I found to what I'm doing. I was able to stop and say, okay, I don't have to refrain myself to communicate certain things to my sister, or I don't have to pretend something else. Actually, I want her to know me. And so I started talking more to her about the type of projects or interests I have at the moment. And that's made our relationship much richer. And that's sister to sister. So there's purely family relationship, essentially. But we are also developing this relationship of friendship now, which before we didn't have. 
and I think it's much more interesting, you know, to apply this concept through the whole spectrum of relationship. I'm noticing in the way I relate to people I work with, uh, it's becoming extremely important for me that it's not a standardized way of working in serious and we just relate professionally. That there is also an honest communication. For example, with the people I'm working with, I find it extremely important that we remind ourselves about self-care, that, uh, you know, you make space to do the check-in so you understand the emotional state of the person you're working with before a meeting and and that makes conversation much easier to navigate. So say somebody's having a bad day, if you don't give time for that, then maybe like they say something a little bit snappy during a meeting and instead of you having that negative reaction, if you know what's happening in their emotional world or in their life, then you're able to take it with a pinch of salt. In terms of their character... How would you say your current relationships differ from the relationships you've had earlier? All in all, I find the relationship I'm having in my life now are much more honest, are much more honest. And because of that, they're much more enriching. I don't like authenticity, authentic, because I find this a word that maybe has been a little bit abused, especially in uh, this uh, spiritual or like uh, personal development type of uh, communities. I hear you. Genuine, maybe genuine is more appropriate. I'm more comfortable with genuine relationships <laughs> than authentic. <laughs> the word genuine, it's less corrupted. Absolutely. Yeah, these default assumptions of who we are in our relationships and also what it means to be quote unquote authentic in them. Mm-hmm. I find it relies so heavily on notions from the past that we're constantly carrying the past with us in in the way that we're living the now and the way that we go forward. Yeah, so breaking down these boxes or these barriers of expectations, I find it sounds so easy, but the really difficult part is actually in being and creating the new. Yeah, absolutely. So I wonder with you, when you you mentioned with your sister that you had a change in the way that you were relating to each other, perhaps you've had that with other people as well. You said you apply this across the board, uh, relationship anarchy. But I wonder, were you afraid to share these things? Were you worried about judgment? It's not necessarily fear of judgment. It's more this idea that that relationship is for one thing, that relationship is for another thing. And I think that's how we look at things in society. We put a hat on who am I in this context? Who am I when I'm in the work mode? Who am I when I'm relating to my family? So I think it was more this sort of belief that one relationship had to be that way. So like for my sister, for example, I thought I need to be a role model and I need to speak or share what is expected of me to share with her. There's no need for me to share what I like and what I do. And I felt I had to, I, I, I don't know, it's, it's just, it's, um, how can I put it? Uh, but the main thing that has happened with applying the notion of relationship anarchy in my life also exploration with conscious king communities is that instead of having these different hats on, I was able to integrate. I was able to integrate all these different personas. 
So it's not just that Maria is into the sex positive world uh, or into creative stuff. And then the Maria, who's the sister uh, from a Southern Italian family, is almost how can I bring all these elements together? In order to do that, um, I had to look inward and I had to do lots of work on myself because I had to decondition, let go of all the conditioning. I had to unlearn all the patterns that I grew up believing subconscious work very much going out of the comfort zone. Very often it becomes messy <laughs> and sometimes it's painful and it can be deeply uncomfortable. But once you get on the other side, it's totally worth it in my experience. I'm not saying it works for everybody, but for me, it has allowed me to look at my life saying, okay, who am I? What do I want? What quality of relationship do I seek? And how do I want to live my life? So the way I approach work has changed in the way I define my sense of identity. I used to believe that, you know, you need to have a specific career, this more linear way of going through life. You get a job and you get a promotion and you get the next promotion and you get a better job, for example. And now it's just a much more present way of living life. It has allowed me to let go of all those fears of, you know, all those fears which are put into our head. It's like, what am I going to do when I get old? What if I die old and alone and uh, I never have a career that I can explain to my parents? And so all this type of inner chattering, uh, I was able to let go of that. And that has allowed me to embrace so many beautiful experiences and live a life that uh, yes, by no means very conventional, but definitely I'm the happiest and the healthiest I have ever been, really. I just, uh, I just feel content in a way that I didn't used to feel before. Whew, yeah, the shaking up of convention. From an early age, Catholicism was the water you were swimming in. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Oh, extremely Catholic environment. Absolutely. Was very, very religious environment and combined with lots of superstition. So it was the worst of both worlds, essentially, the Catholic one and the superstitious one. And uh, Southern Italy back in the 80s, the 90s, when I was growing up there, and still now, it feels like they're half a century at least behind from even the rest of Italy, let alone any countries in Northern Europe, which is a little bit more progressive. And so it's almost like if time has stopped, the time when I was growing up, that it didn't used to be so much access to information as we have nowadays. Kids or teenagers these days that uh, are trying to understand their sexuality, and maybe they feel that they are queer. Once even the concept of queer is so readily available, or maybe they feel they like people of the same sex, and you can go online and you can find all the information, and there are all these support groups uh, where you have forums and you can have uh, mental support, all these type of things that were not available then. So it was really really a surreal experience growing up in that environment as a, as a young woman. Very, very surreal. Mm. Uh -uh. Yeah, I honestly can barely imagine it, mostly through Italian literature and films. I think the last Italian film that I watched was um, in lockdown round one <laughs> about a year ago, Beyond the Clouds, Antonioni. I was just wriggling in my chair these um, tropes 
the push-pull between men and women, the expectations. Of course, these are not unique to Italian social constructs, but it was something in their treatment that um, was just harrowing. People see this, and they repeat it, and they perpetuate it. I find the sugarcoating really violent, especially when people internalize what they've seen, these fantasies, as their own desires. Yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely. I also feel like sometimes with the way that very religious and more macho cultures approach relationships and sexuality, that a big part of what powers the passion there is all of the taboo around things. Mm, 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 mm. How is it for you? The existence of taboos within that, do you see that as a significant part of what propelled you to come out and live differently? I mean, I've, I've always uh, felt out of place in southern Italy. My parents moved back there when I was six years old and I never fitted there. And the fact of uh, having a fling with a woman uh, while you're there, I mean, that sort of puts you against the whole system. It's uh, wrong in so many ways. I just felt it very isolated and lonely and misunderstood and I was studying foreign languages in high schools. I just knew that I needed to get myself out of that environment because uh, it was just either that or, or like, I don't know, my mental health, I don't think could have put up with that in the long term. And there was always this burning need of uh, going, uh, of running away, which is something that I've done a few times in my life. I didn't have the tool. It was more an impulsive choice, I think. A survival instinct almost, a, a well-thought <laughs> sort of action. It was almost uh, between running away from home and, uh, and leaving. I knew I needed to leave for my well-being. It was almost a survival instinct. That's how I felt. it felt to me. Where were you in your development um, when you first had this sexual, first sexual encounter with another female? Oh, quite young. I mean, <laughs> uh, I was in my uh, early teens. It was a, quite an innocent relationship, I have to say. You know, it was more like uh, feeling in love and uh, and kissing and cuddling. It wasn't uh, sort of a very adventurous sexual relationship. And I was 17 by the time I left. So it didn't take much, basically, in that process from me from the moment I had that experience. But I wanted to leave anyway. I, I remember even as a child, even before this happened, I just was counting the days to my 18th birthday then I managed to leave earlier I didn't even know what or where or why but I wanted to go I had always had apparently this fascination for London which I don't know where it came from I guess reading um, British literature or like listening to all the music from the UK and punk and all of that and the riot girl and this type of things and so that felt like a safe bet and then I thought, okay, almost I was trying to find what was the almost the opposite, the, 
the thing more different to my village, which, which I could access. So I almost thought, what, what, which one is the biggest city in Europe? Because that's what I could afford at the time. And so London was the first choice. I guess if it was nowadays, maybe I would have tried the United States as well. Um, but back in the days, I mean, you didn't have low cost airlines. I remember like going to an estate agent and I had to stop in Brussels because the, there were no direct flights to London. I mean, that's only in 2001. Uh, it, it's just things have changed so much. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, definitely the squatting scene as well, right? You were a squatter there for a long mm -hmm. time. For a few years, yeah, for a few years. And back then it was uh, a whole different scene for that, right? If a place was empty, you could pick up a sign. <laughs> well, take in a piece of paper with you, right? And as long as you got in behind the door, you put in the sign that says occupied and you could stay. I mean, it was a bit of a blurry area, but essentially, I think it was something that was still staying. I don't, I don't want to get it wrong, but it was still staying from something like the Second World War when people, like lots of houses were empty and some people were coming back from the war and their house had been bombed or maybe like they were in the city and their house got bombed. And then the idea was if you were finding a house empty, then you could stay in the house until the, um, the owners were not claiming property back, were not coming back. And so there was this thing of the legal notice. It was very blurry because if you were getting caught breaking in, that's illegal. But if they were realizing the house was squatted afterwards and you had your legal warning on, then they had to go through the proper legal proceedings. And so you would receive a letter if they wanted to evicute you saying that... Um, we were supposed to go to court, usually unless you had a project like a social center or something like that, you were not showing up. And then they would send you a date, a letter with the date when the bailiff would come. And uh, so that was a bit more the legal way of navigating that. But it was, it was something more than that. The proper community, very political, it was very creative. But there were also some self-destructive element in there. Um, very much a party culture, for example. And very much a way of approaching activism, old school anarchies where you don't take into account things like self-care and well-being. Almost this uh, dying for the cause type of uh, approach which later in life now, right now, I feel like I'm uh, very much doing activism in my own way, but my well-being and self-care comes first and foremost. You know, I don't have any more that approach we used to have in the squatting communities that is almost like, yeah, it's, there is lots of anger. There is lots of anger. There is lots of extreme type of measures. Like you go and sleep in front of Parliament Square and, uh, you know, it felt painful. It felt very painful, um, that period, because you almost take on board all the problems and then all of a sudden, like, you might lose perception of the beauty in life you know everything becomes very serious and very heavy and you're into you know protesting against the war in Iraq and then you see somebody getting killed in a protest and remember like I lived with people who got hooked on heroin and you see them overdosing and dying and so death is present and uh, suffering looking at it in insight at too many commonalities with catholic approach of the martyr you see <laughs> Uh, I don't think it's really a healthy approach. I, I really believe nowadays that you cannot give from an empty tank. And so if you don't uh, look after yourself and if you're not well, and if you don't have certain boundaries, 
you, you can't you can't you can't without sort of jeopardizing yourself and harming yourself it's a bit this thing of empathy for me feeling empathy is having this approach where i can understand and hear the person but their pain does not become mine because otherwise if you have two people <laughs> suffering nobody goes anywhere but if you're able to keep that detachment in a sense then you're also more capable of supporting whoever you got in front of you or fighting for whichever cause is close to your heart beautifully said i really often think about this morally masochistic and self-punishing trait as something that feels a container for caring that is very self-destructive yes it's really heartening to hear that you can move through from that being an activist like that to how you do it now. Nowadays, you're an activist in different ways for different causes. Could you speak about that, how you are an activist today? I really believe that the change starts from within. So for me, the main thing was to really do all this work on myself and to embody what is the thing that I want to see more of in the world. I got so much within King community, conscious King community, and around reevaluate how I relate with other human beings. I find that so powerful, and I really feel that from that, many other things can change. Everything has basically changed. And then in terms of projects, at the moment, I'm involved with a project, one of the many, because um, I've also like built a life for myself now where in the same way I, uh, I find that the monogamous model of relating does not work for me. Right now I'm living my life between the Canary Islands and Berlin and a bit the UK. I ended up getting involved in several projects and one of the projects I'm working with at the moment is called Uncensored. And Uncensored is a, a project that started in the UK a couple of years ago. It started as a festival which was looking at the intersection between pornography, art and activism. And so basically we are trying to promote diversity in pornography, promote a healthier industry for adult performers, and also looking at pornography as an art form. It's quite fascinating. And if you look back, there is so much. It's more of erotica, no? More of an arty approach to sex and porn than the mainstream pornography we are exposed to today. So this is one project I'm involved with at the moment, which I'm really proud of. We are trying to apply, like what we're saying, having a different way of approaching work, of embodying uh, what we preach. So during the lockdown last year, we uh, decided to run an open call for porn made in isolation. We sort of check in with each other and we realized that all these lockdowns and pandemic and stuff like that was um, completely disconnecting us to our body and our ability to feel pleasure and to feel joy. And so we felt that uh, we own it to ourselves and to our community to do something which was reminding people that yes things are a bit awkward and dystopian at the moment but hey we are still human and we still can feel pleasure and we can still create beauty and we can still feel joy and it was amazing i am very proud of that process that's when i joined the team i wasn't with the team for the first festival but then during lockdown i joined them and it was beautiful it was beautiful to see the quality of the stuff that people submitted to see the humor they brought into the video that they submitted and uh, how creative people got with the limited resources. It was also very exciting because I feel that 
this whole situation of the pandemic actually brought these um, ethical porn conscious sexuality communities more together. Lots of the work we screened in the final screening that we shortlisted was coming from collectives in Brazil, from collectives in Germany, adult performers and ethical porn directors. We got our event screened on Pink Label TV which is a, a production company doing sort of queer ethical porn in California. And what they did, they did a crowdfunding campaign to create a platform that wouldn't be subject to censorship. Where is the censorship coming from? I know lots of people have used Zoom for workshops around sexuality and maybe their account got blocked. So you don't have absolute freedom to screen what you want if you use third-party platforms. Uh, and there are also significant costs involved. Yeah, third-party platforms and the authority of what constitutes as obscenity. We're definitely living through a new era of testing ground for distribution. How did you deal with this increasing difficulty? There was this sense of togetherness as a consequence of things getting more difficult. And that made me full of hope and made me feel really motivated and made me feel like, you know, that there was a purpose in what I was doing. And I could see it working and I could see beauty happening, could see the community coming together. And that's been super, super exciting as a process. Could you describe some of your favorite submissions? What were the submissions to the festival that spoke to you most or made you laugh the most? You mentioned there was a lot of humor. Yeah, there, uh, there was one called The Sex in Times of Corona, which was submitted by a collective of directors and performers of ethical porn uh, from Berlin. And it was like a sort of a parody of how you can have sex in time of Corona. Very humoristic approach and that made me laugh a lot. And I very much enjoyed that were winner of the Body of Work selection, which is this Brazilian collective called EDIY Productions. They submitted a few shorts, mostly around masturbation, but they were super creative. There was one which was more sort of ecosexual and it was all very playful. Ecosexual, like um, fetishism based around nature. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, one of the shorts, I mean, two actually of them, one is with plants and another one is with cacti. Uh, and there is this playing, like this erotic sort of play involving plants, essentially. But they're also amazing because they also do like um, happenings and performance and they're extremely political and their stars really liked their approach to, to what they were doing, to their films and to their activism. And we all have very much an activist element. But they were all very wonderful submissions and actually it was quite hard to come up with a program that had a certain flow and, um, and also to select things because, I mean, some things we did not select, but they were still good. And some of the stuff we screened also kept on appearing on other programs, Berlin Porn Film Festival. So where can films from the festival be seen now? Mm, unfortunately, we had just live screening event. We were not able to do view-on-demand type of thing, but uh, if you look at our program, some of the shorts can also be available on Vimeo or uh, they might be available on other platforms. I know the Berlin Porn Film Festival had a view-on-demand for certain dates, but I think... I think it's uh, done for now. We did some uh, interviews with the uh, winners of our 
open call, there were three categories. And so if you go on our website, the uncensoredfest.com website, then you can find the interview. And at the end of the interview, you've got uh, links to the social media or websites, if they have it, of the winner. And it's possible that they might have also access to, to some stuff for free or paying for it. Nice. So there's a pretty good overview at uncensoredfest.com. So what is it that makes ethical porn ethical and contrasted to porn that isn't ethical? Mm-mm-mm. The first thing that comes up is if you think about the condition of workers, of performers in the adult industry, film industry, it's well known that they are not the best conditions. There are cases of breach of consent, abuse. Lots of adult performers in the mainstream porn industry can have um, mental health issues, addiction problems. So the first point is making sure that it's possible to produce porn that actually prioritizes the well-being of its performer, that takes into account all these things. So fair pay, performance regularly checked for STIs, so like making sure they look after their uh, sexual health, safe sex. So in the case of the open call that we run, all the profits we did were donated to a charity called Pineapple Support, which is in the United States, and they provide free uh, support for mental health uh, for adult industry performers. The other issue with mainstream porn is that it's just a very one-way approach of looking at sexuality. It's very stereotypical, it's very heteronormative. It does not allow space for diversity. And so in the context of ethical porn, you find queer porn, you find different types of kings, and also you can have a more arty approach. So it's about creating beauty and art. You can come up with quirky concepts. It's really essentially improving the condition of adult industry performers in terms of their sexual health, their mental health, the conditions in terms of pay, and also allowing for a more diverse portfolio. Sounds like it has the potential for total rescripting of everything. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, for me, the main thing is like whether we like it or not. I mean, teenagers, they all go and look at porn. Uh, There is this constant influx of pornographic material that they can access online. So in a sense, porn also has this educational function. I find it extremely important that young people are able to see that there is not just one way of approaching sexuality. In ethical porn, there is real sex and there is not this stereotypical of beauty. So if you look at mainstream porn, it's very much like there is a certain type of beauty for women. And usually that involves like small waist, big, big breasts, uh, blonde hair, straight hair. You know, there are certain things which is more the doll type of beauty and is usually engaging in sex with men who seems to be waking up and running around with a massive erection all the time. And, and I don't know, and also the sex between women seems to be just to pleasure the guy. It's very, it's very limiting. It, does, it doesn't do it for me. Uh, and I'm not saying also that this type of more heteronormative sex should be abolished, but we definitely need to make space to show people that there are young people that there is different way of approaching sexuality. There are different body sizes, for example. That's another thing you get in ethical porn, different body sizes. 
different color of skin, different constellations. You could be like just women, it could be a group, but it could be a queer group. It could be so many things, so many things. And also like I've heard people saying, no, I don't watch porn. I don't like porn. And I don't think they don't like porn. There is a stigma around porn because there is just one type of porn, which is out there at the moment. And if you create a diversity, then everybody can find something that works for them, something that works for them. It might not even turn you on, but it allows to, to see that there is uh, different ways of approaching sex and also to normalize our relationship to sex. So one thing that was really nice with the Uncensored was that they got support for the festival from the Arts Council in the UK. So this recognition that pornography can be seen as, as having also an artistic function that was very important because then it allows to normalize uh, that. So I'm sure that some people who attended the festival were people that maybe wouldn't have been exposed to this approach to pornography if the festival had not happened. And the fact that it was endorsed also by the Arts Council maybe removed that stigma, you know, and uh, enabled them to try it. There were also workshops happening for when they did um, the festival. I remember attending one uh, on um, making your own erotic movie run by Jennifer Lyon Bells, who runs this um, ethical film production company in the Netherlands called Blue Artichoke. And the quality of the workshop was excellent. And also, like, people were not just in the sort of passive spectator role, but they could also have a more hands on approach. How did that work, this hands-on approach? Um, it's basically in the same way you would do a workshop around writing a mini script for a short or for a film, but around something erotic. I remember we were invited to think about a story and then create like a sort of storyline. And then we were working in groups to sort of test how the how this was flowing. So there was a collaborative element in sort of pinning down your your story the story you wanted to tell. And it was a different experience also approaching uh, porn because there was this sense of arousal by creating your own stories. What I really enjoyed about the open call, the fact that people came and looked at the final screening, but also people were able to create their own things. We were open both to amateur and professional filmmaker. And so that's a different experience. It made it very beautiful. It was very enriching. The brain is the largest erogenous zone. Mm-mm-mm-mm. Also, there are studies saying sometimes the neural pathways that measure arousal, they basically get more lit up. Sometimes when you imagine something, the control of that imagination flow that actually when you're in the action of doing it. For example, it was around sex that sometimes, you know, if I was thinking about the fantasy and then they were measuring my brain waves, and then you do it, actually, when you are fantasizing about it, your level of arousal, arousal is even higher. So I find it quite fascinating. It's like it opens a whole new realm of, of possibilities. Yeah. Now I'm just thinking of ways that I've been self-stimulated through a lot of this kind of imaginative scenarios, speculative things that aren't even happening, but the thought of them is almost more exciting than the thing when it happens itself, mm. the build-up. <laughs> the anticipation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Earlier at the beginning of the talk, you were saying a lot about performance art-based inspiration, tools, techniques of the more recent sex-positive scene that you've found yourself in. Mm -hmm. 
I think you kind of opposed it from your London experience, more of a kind of group sex, verbal based consent mm -hmm, structure mm -hmm. around exploring a more open form to sexuality. Mm -hmm. Tell me more about those techniques. I'd love to hear what the really changing ones have been for you. Mm. First of all, I would like to clarify that when I talk about this performative element, it's more in terms of embodied performance. So it's not the type of acting that you would do when you are acting in a theater per se. So it's an embodied way of using these, uh, these performative tools. Mm, yeah, it makes me think of things like warm-up exercises from dance for coming into your body before you get into something like choreography or more technical kind of things. Exactly. I'm thinking of body-mind centering, for example, or Feldenkrais. Exactly. So the place where you find your articulation of the bodily expression through what's inside. Yes. As opposed to reenacting something you've seen before. Absolutely. A way of approaching performance where you are not performing something from a conscious place, but it's almost the performance comes to you in a sense. Some of the things I've been exploring lately are very much around the notion of psychomagic uh, from uh, Khodorovsky, this idea of creating sort of a symbolism, a scene or something like that. And through this embodied performance, which can be almost a trance-like place to be, that then you can make sense of your reality, you can process stuff, establish a different way of interacting with the other person. And I also do that combining movement, breathing technique, and also some role play. And very often uh, on top of all this symbolism, some of tools you can find in the conscious king communities. So you could maybe use pain or impact play as part of that. That's really interesting. Could you give an example of how you've used one of these techniques for yourself? I was going through a period of processing some very deep grief for the loss of someone. I decided to set an intention and, uh, and have a session of uh, mummification. It was a cathartic process. It was a way to be with what I was feeling and to let go of it. So there is very much this element of using conscious skin tool, using pain and using performance to work through your own stuff, to process your own stuff, to grow and to establish a different way of relating to different human beings. How does your physical state relate to your mental state during and after such an experience? So the way I can describe it is um, if you were having a psychedelic experience in those contexts, I almost feel that The ego, the person who, me, Maria, born in Italy and has got this age and this female gender and all this type of thing almost becomes secondary. And there is this much more profound way which touches some subconscious element through which you can express yourself and relate to other people. And it's quite a fascinating process with that because uh, you can set an intention of time and the time is something very specific. Okay, I'm going to try this uh, king thing to get there or maybe sometimes you've got your own scene. I do use these tools by myself. I, I basically am in that space where I'm trying to connect with myself and quiet in the mind and then something happens. 
Recently, I was working with this very interesting uh, artist, the conceptual artist called Rocio Bolivar from Mexico. She does lots of work around the body art conceptual work and using also pain to sort of embody even more and transmit whatever emotion you want to transmit to your audience. So I was having a conversation with her and trying to explain what was happening for me uh, in those moments where I was doing that exploration. And uh, I was saying, it's an epiphany. She's like, no, she calls it epiphenomeno uh, is a, <laughs> in, in, in Spanish. So there is a name for that. Yeah, you showed me a bit of Rocio's work, sent me a link. And I really, really appreciate, felt so deeply for the way that she works with ugliness, mm, mm, a very mm. counter-normative take on the body, like showing unflattering by conventional standards, unflattering angles, parts of the body that if you were in a mainstream construct, you would not want to see, that you would edit out, that you would Photoshop away. And these are almost at the front and center of a lot of her work. Yes. And on top of that, coming from this place in her work, she was a, a movie star. She was working for the Mexican TV. She was a presenter doing quite well with her work in Mexican TV. She, she was also doing her art on the side, her conceptual arts and performances. And then she found herself in a place where she either had to drop performance art and continue with her career or give up her career as a presenter. And so, of course, uh, as we've seen, she opted to stick to performance art. And she's been doing that for the last 30 years now. I find that so inspiring, the way that she's embracing her her aging. Mm -hmm. So like looking at the female body as it ages, which is generally something that, you know, we don't do, as we were exactly. saying earlier with mainstream porn, especially exactly. what an attractive body is, what a body worth looking at, what a body worthy of being considered sexual and sexually appealing is. It's so caged. Yes. And the way that she works, you see... yes an aging body in a way that we normally don't see it. We put it away, we put it into a closet and we say, oh, you know, your time is past. Yes, 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 yes. And I think especially this work around uh, aging uh, with La Congelada de Uva, uh, that's how uh, she got the name, the, her art name, I think is some of the most interesting, but she's done lots of performances. I'm still sort of uh, delving into exploring all the work she's done because I mean, over 30 years, <laughs> you do quite a bit, but what, whatever stuff I've watched from her, it's, um, it's incredible. There was one which I'm trying to remember the title for that was looking at romantic relationships, but the conventional one, which comes with all the codependency and unhealthy attachment patterns. But she does it through a whole, um, using conceptual art through the very extremely embodied performance. And it's incredible. She She's capable in the same project to make you laugh, but also like uh, by the end, you're just like uh, holding on your seat and you're really feeling her pain. I think it's called the sea animal and the hermit crab. And I can't remember the name of the other artist she worked with on that one, but they start like, you know, like a couple and it's all fluffy and, uh, you know, they, there are balloons and they're giving each other presents and then the whole thing starts seeing the power dynamics at play. And because she uses pain in, their, in her performances, it ends with uh, her putting hooks on her body. And the other artist working with her is wearing almost this fetish uh, bracelets and belt. There are hooks on there as well. And they are joined by this fish line. 
the end of the performance is very much this game of push and pull uh, as they are separating. And as they're doing that, and she goes for freedom, you can see, of course, like the hooks tearing. First, you start seeing blood and then tearing skin and you really feel the pain. And I, I found it an extremely powerful performance. I've only seen the the video it was years back she did that she did that in los angeles i think it was for some valentine that day um, but the performance is like and you really feel it is like a universal way of communicating the message i really think with body art when you use the the pain or where you can actually see the physicality of it the way you perceive the emotion is so enhanced and it becomes all of a sudden also like this universal story like I've been in those relationships with codependence and I've been through breakups, which have been extremely messy and painful. And there, there was the symbolism that this relationship completely like destroy you and you're destroyed by the end. It's very difficult, this process of living, but it's necessary. And then from there, you're healed and you grow up and you can embrace life with the learning you get from that relationship. I mean, in that performance, it's just thinking about it, I'm getting goosebumps. Uh, I mean, the, there is the other artist, sort of, I don't know if you know, the Nemikitpa, the, the French song, Nemikitpa. Jacques mm, Brel. Exactly. And, and then there is the, um, the other uh, artist is basically just uh, reciting the, the, the lyrics of this song. So imagine this push and pull and him going like, Nemikitpa, je veux être ton chien. And you're like, ah! Oh! So powerful, so powerful. I absolutely love her work and it's been an extremely inspirational, humbling almost experience to collaborate with her recently for an art video. And actually, yes, that's, uh, that I would like to man mention, that's going to be part of an exhibition that they're going to do at the ICA, at the Institute of Contemporary Art in London. And it's uh, part of this exhibition called um, Last Breath Society. Uh, I think it's coordinated by O'Brien. And so there are going to be like lots of artists. Uh, and it's going to be May. I still, I'm still not sure about the exact dates. And in COVID time, everything is a bit up in the air until the <laughs> last minute. But the intention is to have the exhibition in, uh, in May. Last Breath Society, you said. Last Breath Society, yeah. Mm. So do you feel like seeing so much through her gaze recently, how she looks at dynamics of codependency and the female body starting to age, that it has an effect on the way that you perceive yourself, the way that you look at yourself? Mm -mm. I mean, it's been for me to, uh, to have this encounter with with an artist, with an older woman who's living a lifestyle that aligns very much with the way I'm living my life at the moment, with somebody that... I spend lots of time uh, reflecting on, researching and using it in performance concept that I'm barely discovering. It's been like uh, absolutely inspiring. I feel much more comfortable in the way I'm living my life, uh, less alone. And I feel like there is somebody I can, I can learn from as well. You know, if you're trying something very DIY, sometimes I do my things and I'm like, oh, maybe I'm losing my mind. <laughs> you know, there are always those moments where you're like, maybe I'm, I'm pushing things too far. And then to realize that you're not alone and other people have been doing similar exploration and they've actually put name to those things you've been experiencing. And, um, and also like the fact of uh, I'm always behind the scene and their work is very much putting yourself out there. I mean, she also comes from uh, Mexico. Mexico is like Southern Italy. It's very 
traditional, very conservative, uh, and so putting your, yourself in the forefront, doing this type of radical work. Uh, and then because of her, I also like, realized that there is a whole, whole new realm, which I had not tapped into yet, of body art and other performance, performers that are doing super interesting work using the body as the central element of the performance. Another one very interesting I've come across is called Fakir Musafar, and uh, he inspires himself very much to rituals that were used uh, involving pain, uh, that were used by the Native Americans um, as a sort of a spiritual practice. And I found, I found this work extremely interesting as well. There was this one that was probably with the most uh, challenging maybe to to watch which is the sandans which is essentially putting hooks in your body and uh, and then hanging from those hooks and you hang from those hooks or you pull on those hooks basically and you keep on doing this sort of push and pull things going into sort of trance-like state until the skin rips off essentially so you got this hook and you go you got push and pull and push and pull and it's almost it's rocking until the skin breaks and that used to be used as a ritualistic practice as a spiritual practice and it's also the other element which comes up strongly so i have been engaging with some people very close to me and also this is how I'm approaching my exploration of intimacy like ritual is very important so for me at the moment I think the way I want to relate to intimacy is to explore in a, in a ritualistic way and I've been experimenting that with some people it's been like an amazing an amazing experience an amazing uh, learning curve every every experience if you create that container with a ritual and you don't go with the expectation in an encounter, in an intimate encounter with someone. It's incredible that the wealth and the diversity and the possibilities that you explore in the realm of intimacy, even with the most unlikely sort of constellation. So another thing which is becoming extremely important in my life at the moment is using the ritual, something I rejected for a long time because my understanding was rituals is something that they do in religion, right? what you do in church and you do the prayer and you do the riddle thing and you do the communion and you do the whatever things they do. I mean, I'm drawing now from Christian Catholic religion because this is what I was exposed to. And so in order to free myself from that, I became extremely rational and I'm a fervent atheist and all these type of things, right? But that meant also that I was giving up things which actually are useful if you just remove them from the religious context and you appropriate them for what you need. The sense of grounding. I celebrated the coming of spring by doing my own ritual by myself. I spent a whole night doing creative stuff and movement and breathing and writing and uh, dancing and all of that. I don't like celebrating Christmas. I don't like to celebrate all of these festivities. But I think it's important to have some uh, milestones I'm using seasons now, but you could use anything. And then also to create a container of the ritual for what you do is I think it makes the experience much more present. And then it allows you also to bring lots of symbolism in it. And so it's almost, I say, it's, it's a sort of uh, witchcraft in a sense. You, know? <laughs> you try to process things and make meaning of things uh, in a way which transcends the simple rationalization which is also what happens for me in uh, conscious king dynamics at times uh, you go through an experience 
something shifts within you and you are not quite sure what is it. And then after that, there is sort of the intellectual understanding of what happened rather than just approaching it, trying to unlock it just with reason. You use your symbolism, you try to tap into the subconscious, you feel it in your body. And then from there, you can uh, yeah, rationalize it and then understand it from a point of reason as well. It's almost like a shortcut. I think if you feel things through your body, um, using rituals, using symbols, then it's a faster way to get where you want to get or where you need to get. I mean, we are made by the conscious part and the subconscious part, and we are uh, a rational brain, but we are also body. And then there is very much these uh, many things in society, this duality, this opposition of this versus the other. And actually, we're just part of the whole thing. And so if you work with both sides as if they were one, then uh, it's more efficient. Let's put it this way. It's more efficient, it's more enjoyable, and it's faster. I find it faster sometimes in one ritual or in one uh, sort of uh, conscious thing exchange. I feel like I, I, I go through so much stuff that probably would take six months to a year of intensive psychotherapy to get to a similar place. I hear you. Sometimes I feel like I've had many lives within the spans of just a few days when I've been focusing really intensely on this kind of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> or one evening can feel like a week of experiences or a month. Exactly. The many lives. What's happening for me really in life is like I come across some sort of observations and then I sort of find the theory and insight uh, to support what I've been experiencing and then uh, feeling more enabled to keep on exploring whatever I come across essentially. So that's what's happening with me now with all this process. When, when I started doing these things, I didn't know about Rocio's work and I didn't know about this concept of epiphenomenon. I didn't know about the psychomagic of Khodorovsky. These things started happening and these processes probably as a result of all the other tools I've been experimenting with and probably because of relating to people who had a certain openness as well for this thing to happen. Yeah, that enabled me to say, hey, there is this other way uh, of exploring my sense of reality and process whatever is happening for me. This episode has got me thinking a lot about the complexities of consent and representation, of people whose colors and desires are drowned in hegemonic, mainstreamed environments. We're living with complex rhetoric and realities from the Me Too movement, Black Lives Matter, and Asian hate. These are issues I'll be getting into in future episodes. Let's talk about consent. Let's talk about sexual racism. Join me. Represent. Not Your Narrative is produced and hosted by me, Liv Phoenix. Music by John Abbott, Autonomic Sensations, and Van Sandano. Art direction by Ayoto Atarexia.